Hello, I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And then Welcome back, everyone. We're excited to welcome Juliana Bermudez, a bilingual school psychologist and mama to the podcast today. Um, Juliana lives in Ohio and recently started her own business, Beta Services, which serves as a consulting firm for special education assessment and psychoeducational reports conducted in Spanish. Um, she's a dedicated advocate of appropriate services and assessment for all children, including English language learners. Uh, and we are very excited to welcome her to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So um, can you first just walk us through your job a little bit, what a typical day looks like um, for people who may not know what a bilingual school psychologist is? Absolutely. So uh, every school um, has a school psychologist. Um, and we are the ones in charge of assessing and evaluating students for special education services. And so that's what our day-to-day -day kind of main job is of a traditional school psychologist is. But within the field, we definitely have specialties. And so my specialty is with bilingual learners. And so I'm in charge of assessing and evaluating bilingual learners for special education because the big question that always arises is is this student having difficulties learning due to a true disability or is it factors to second language acquisition to bilingual um, maybe immigration trauma so it's kind of my job to investigate and determine what are the barriers to learning in in the case of a bilingual learner and would this be all ages or elementary school? Yes. Yes. So I am certified um, in from pre-K all the way up to 12th grade. Um, I'm certified in the state of Ohio with the Ohio Department of Education. And then I also hold my independent license um, to practice independently in the state. Um, and that's more in like the private sector if I wanted to. But essentially, anywhere there is like learning happening, we can assess. Cool. So how did you become interested in bilingual school psychology and starting your own business? How did this come about? Yeah. So I um, I first started, I really like under my undergrad major was psychology and I minored in education. So I definitely had an interest in education and in psychology, but I did not want to be a teacher and I didn't want to be like a therapist. I didn't want to be just in the clinical setting all day long. And so when I worked as an undergrad student, one of my first jobs was in um, as a middle school um, after school coordinator. And I worked with uh, EL students then. And so it was kind of like the after school program. It was a lot of fun. And at that school, I met the school psychologist sort of in passing and in talking about some of our students. And um, it was really, really interesting to kind of see how he did his job. And that's sort of how I became interested in the field. And then I just kind of started doing some investigation and learned that my bilingualism could really be an asset because there's not enough of bilingual school psychologists. I think it's only like 8% of the field. Um, and so then one thing led to another and I just kind of fell in love with, with being 
um, a school psychologist and then becoming the bilingual school psych. Um, so you mentioned that you grew up bilingual. Can you expand upon that a little more, what your personal background is and, and how that plays a role in your job, if it does at all? Yeah. So I, um, I'm originally, I was born in Columbia, South America, but um, I grew up in Southeast Florida, surrounded, I grew up in Broward County. I went to Broward County schools and I was, that's Florida is my home state. And I was just surrounded by everyone being bilingual and speaking Spanish. And then I got married and moved to Ohio and it was so different here. Um, Just the fact that I couldn't, I didn't have access to like a Latino restaurant or like a Latino grocery store. It was just very, very different. And that's really moving here to Ohio um, and just kind of navigating the adult world and employment. um, That's really when I benefited and understood the value of my bilingualism because it definitely set me apart, especially as a school psychologist. Um, You know, I would talk to peers in Florida, in Southeast Florida, and it's like, okay, everyone here speaks Spanish. Like, it doesn't set you apart. School sites down there are automatically assumed to be bilingual, whether it's they speak Creole in English, whether, um, you know, the Haitian Creole in English or Spanish or Portuguese and English. I mean, it's just assumed, but here it was definitely a big asset for me. And um, so it's pretty much set me apart and I've been able to capitalize on that. And that sort of went into me developing my business the way it is. Wow. So for those of us who don't understand necessarily what special ed is, especially for me who are not originally from the U.S., and I want to be informed for my for, for my kids and for myself. How does the special ed process work, and how is it different for bilingual or multilingual students? So we have here in the states um, a law called um, IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act, and it pretty much states that every student has a right to a free and appropriate public education, no matter. Um, if they're disabled or not. So it's definitely meant to um, include every student in the educational process. And in the schools, school psychologists, um, I don't know, some of them see it as unfortunately or fortunately, we enforce that law and we make sure that every student is appropriately evaluated and appropriately identified for services if they need to. Um, And so the special education process generally speaking follows the same trajectory but it just can it can look a little bit differently depending on the state the district the school you work in um, just because there's a little um, nuance in the differences but essentially it starts with a concern either from a parent or a teacher and if you have a a concern about your child or your students learning um, you should definitely share that with the teacher or the team at the school. Sometimes it involves the school counselor, the school nurse, the principal, um, the teacher. So that concern leads to a meeting with the team um, and where we kind of strategize about how can we help this student learn. That's the first step of the process. Um, and we typically develop some interventions or accommodations or brainstorm ways to support the student. Um, you know, at that meeting, we sort of talk about all the barriers that could impact 
that concern or lead to that concern or affect the student, whether it's like a grade or they fail this test or they're just not doing well in reading, particularly with decoding or whatever it may be. So it's concern. Then we want to do interventions and see, like, is it just the way we're providing the instruction that's not working? Do we need to modify the environment or the way we're presenting the materials? There's a lot of like back and forth in the brainstorming. Um, and so we want to try interventions and accommodations in the classroom first. Um, and then that's essentially uh, what people refer to as like the response to intervention process or the RTI process. Sometimes it's also called like the different multi-tiered multi-tiered systems of support because there's different pieces that are involved. And then after that, after you've tried that and you see that there is no response to intervention, then you go ahead and start with an evaluation. And that is the evaluation for special education um, that is done by a school psychologist in the district or in the school. And that's where you suspect that there's a disability. Um, and so you sort of feel like we've tried these interventions and they can go on for as, as long as every case is different. I mean, some of them are short, some of them are more long-term. Um, some parents don't want the evaluation and are happy with the accommodations that they're getting for their student. It's, so it just kind of depends how long that process takes. But then we do the evaluation and we suspect a disability. We think that the, the learning is due to a disability or a diagnosis. Um, we suspect that the child may need specialized instruction. And within that law, this is all part of IDEA and the law that we are enforcing and following and making sure we are in compliance with, there are 13 eligibility categories. Um, so a child can get special education services or specialized instruction, which is kind of what we're calling it these days, in one of those categories. So in order for a child to qualify for services after we do the evaluation, which is very thorough, and it looks at different areas, um, we look at background information, we look at academic records, intelligence, um, which is what we do and assess, we look at achievement, how they're doing, uh, classroom information from the teacher, social emotional learning, behavior, independence skills, we look at, I mean, a million things that we sort of plan in that, those initial stages of the evaluation. Um, and, and then at the end of that evaluation process is determination or eligibility. And so a child can be eligible for services if there is a disability. So we have enough information in the document to determine that, yes, they do, in fact, have a disability and if they also have a need for specialized instruction. So we have to answer those two things. We also, at the same time, have to rule out certain things like uh, appropriate instruction. So has this child received appropriate instruction in the last few years, right? Which is a big issue now coming out of the pandemic because we know that children did not receive appropriate instruction during that time, which makes our jobs very difficult. Or if it's a student that has had a lot of attendance issues mm. um, that impacts your instruction. If it's a student, a newcomer that has maybe been in transient, has been transient um, coming to the States and been here, there and there, and we don't have records of prior schooling, that can impact appropriate instruction. So we have to answer those three things, kind of rule out that they've received appropriate instruction. They need to qualify in one of the um, 13 areas and they also need specialized instruction and we determine that at the meeting 
And then after the child is found eligible in many places, essentially that's where the school psychologist's role ends. But in many other places, school psychs are involved with the development of the individualized education plan. And that's really kind of the nitty gritty of like, okay, my child's qualified, now what? That's what that document is, where we kind of explain, we take the information from the evaluation and we explain exactly what the child needs. They need 30 minutes of additional reading instruction with an intervention specialist working specifically on these goals and objectives. They need extended time on state tests with these accommodations. They need X, Y, and Z. So that's really um, what parents want to know if they qualify for an IEP, short IEP, Individualized Education Plan. Um, and when you say qualify, that means free. All of this is free. The assessment and then whatever services they need is all all of this is free. This is all part of public education in the United States. Um, even if your child goes to a private school, the district of residence where you reside, um, sometimes it's a district of residence where you live or other times if you like commute to a school that's further away, the district of service, it depends, but it's all part of public education and it's all part of the law and we have um, what we call child find. We have to find the children that need the services and support. So it's all part of the education experience and educational process here in the States, which is not common for a lot of our immigrant families or bicultural families. And does this only become a thing at five years old or is there anything you do prior to five years old for that's a, yeah, that's a great question. So um, we have, so edu the idea, the law is split into two, school age, which is kindergarten to 12, and then also preschool. Um, and so we also have um, special needs preschools. And so this is when children turn three, they are eligible for services if they need them as well. This is handled very, very different. It's almost like totally split from the regular because every different, every district is different um, and the categories are different for special uh, needs preschool and for preschool services. Um, the eligibility areas are different um, and services. So some school districts are wide and large and have better funding and so they have an actual school for preschoolers where they can go to receive their services and they also get related services like OT and speech and all that. Other districts are not that big um, and maybe they contract those, those services out and so um, you would have to go to like a Head Start and then the school district will bring the teacher on special assignment um, or the intervention specialist to work with your child if they're in special needs. Um, other districts will send, you know, if the kid is homebound or there's no services in the area, like very rural um, places around the country, they will send the services and the support to the home. So it just really depends on what's available. But if you have a three-year-old and you're concerned about communication or you're concerned about gross motor development, fine motor development, behavior, or cognition, which is our... the five areas and you're just concerned about development in general 
you are eligible for an evaluation and you can call your school district and say, I want a, an evaluation for my preschooler. And that starts at age three. So that how they handle it is differently, but there are supports available. So now that you've described how the special ed process works, can you tell us why is it so important to consult with a bilingual school psychologist on assessment of bilingual children? So the thing about bilingual school psychs is that most bilingual learners in the U.S. will be evaluated by a monolingual school psychologist. Um, one, because we just don't have enough bilingual school psychs in the field. And two, we also don't have the tools um, necessary to assess learners that speak every language that we see represented in the schools. And so I'm, I'm a bilingual school psychologist in Spanish, but I have to work with students that are, you know, from Iraq, from Somalia here in, in, in Columbus, those are our populations, Ethiopia, um, you know, any other country. And so I have to be trained in aspects of uh, cultural and linguistic kind of awareness. So I need to know like how a bilingual student will do on areas that are high in language um, and linguistic demand and high in uh, cultural demands. Um, I also, I do things a little bit differently, which is why it's important for a monolingual school psychologist to consult with a bilingual school psych because we never want to be in a situation where we are delaying an evaluation or delaying properly identifying a student because I'm a monolingual school psychologist and I just don't feel comfortable assessing someone that speaks another language, right? And so the ramifications of it is that we could have a bilingual learner not getting the appropriate services because I, I'm not aware, or maybe I do the evaluation and I just say, oh, that's due to take a second language, when maybe that's not necessarily the case, right? So what I see is that many times in schools where they're not familiar with the educational processes involved with a bilingual learner, or they don't have the staff um, that maybe speaks the language or can connect with the families, um, or they don't have school psychologists or team members that are um, engaging in culturally relevant practices. What happens is that they, the students of bilingual learners are identified later. And so what we see the trends in special education is that bilingual learners are under identified in the earlier years and over identified in the later years which it shouldn't be the case. Like we should be identifying on trend with their monolingual peers. So I see a lot of that, that we are just like not identifying students earlier because we're wanting to give them more time when in fact they do have a disability. And then when we get to the older grades past third grade, we're just over identifying them because they should know what's happening right now. And that's also not necessarily the case. So I see a lot of that under identifying, over identifying in the later years. I also see um, a big difference in uh, parent engagement in the evaluation process. And so when you have a school psychologist that is bilingual, bicultural, that looks like the family speaks the language that the family speaks, can connect with the family and understands them, even if they're not from the same country, like I'm Colombian, I'm Latina, but I know the immigrant struggle, like my parents came here and I can really sort of speak on that. 
I feel like that makes a huge difference um, with parent participation in one, in the special education process, and two, in the educational process um, in general. Like they just become much more trusting of the school system, um, and they just become much more understanding of what's happening with their child versus not having that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I know a lot of schools have to rely on using interpreters, and thank goodness for our interpreters um, that assist our families. But there is a difference when it's la psicóloga escolar, when it's the bilingual school psychologist that is able to relay and talk to all of these standardized measures that I use, the psychometrics, um, the processes that knows the law versus an interpreter that's just doing exactly that, interpreting and maybe not using the adequate language, the exact terminology, the specifics. Um, so I feel like that that really impacts the delivery of services and that really impacts that child's educational experience. If you're a monolingual school psych teacher or whatever and you're not really consulting with a bilingual school psychologist. What would you say are the most common problems you see on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in a school setting? Oh, that's such a loaded question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> and it was my question. I guilty, <laughs> guilty of charge. Um, well, I really think teacher burnout um, is the biggest. Um, teachers have to do a lot, a lot with so little, so little time, so little resources, so little funding and money and um, knowledge. We love our teachers. Yeah, we love our teachers. And I just feel like if we invest more in what teachers need, then I think that, I mean, that's like the biggest problem in education in general. Um, I think for bilingual learners, a big problem is understanding the process of a bilingual learner um, and understanding that Bilingual learners have average intelligence, mostly the majority of them. They, they're not disabled just because they don't speak English. You know, I think understanding how a bilingual learner learns is a big problem because we either don't um, challenge them in ways that they need to be challenged. And so we kind of like everything's like basic mm -hmm. and we don't want that. Or I don't know, I just feel like we kind of just leave them aside and don't aren't really invested in their learning because we're giving it time and then it's that whole like let's just wait and see thing isn't I don't think it's best practice um so it's I would say those are some of the biggest challenges yeah that makes sense that yeah you do see that sometimes they just get like dumbed down material which isn't what they need um let's talk a little bit about the role of parents in all this, since this is a podcast geared toward parents. In your experience, do parents reach out to you more advocating for their child, or is it more you reaching out to parents? And what should be the parent's role? What would you advise parents to do? Yeah. So I, um, right now, I'm an independent school psychologist. Um, I own my own practice and school districts contact me directly. Um, and that is, I think, where I am focusing right now more my advocacy advocacy uh, efforts is in making sure that the school psychologist who's leading that evaluation, because I can't be everywhere. Obviously, we're not going to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really need to 
um, support the monolingual school sites. And so when they can contact me and see me as a colleague and appear to help them, then it makes all the difference. And so then I come on board the evaluation and I start connecting with families. Um, and I'm usually the one that kind of uh, assists with like obtaining consent. So the parents um, usually are sort of informed of what's happening, but I do see that there's like a big breakdown in the communication that's what's coming out of the school and what they're receiving. Um, and once I'm involved, I start communicating. I feel like the ace up my sleeve is WhatsApp. <laughs> and so I start communicating with our families via WhatsApp. And that, oh my gosh, that has made like a world of a difference with their involvement. And uh, they just feel like they can ask me questions that they can't ask anyone else. And I'm the specialist, right? And so it's been amazing. So that's how I kind of operate. And so what happens is they see me on, and I do everything virtual because I used to travel all around the state and then we had a big winter and I'm like, I can't keep doing this. So now I do all of my meetings virtual and they can like see me and we can chat and it's, you know, their guard is just down. And so parents advocate for their kids, no matter what language it's in. And I, they should continue to do that. And if you have a gut feeling, that's valid. There's a reason for that gut feeling and like, do not quit until you get the answers and you're satisfied with the answers. And a lot of times what happens is that the school may not want to do the evaluation for a thousand and one reasons, um, and every case is different. But if there are private practitioners, there are other places where you can go to sort of get that knowledge and like get those answers. And I think parents need to continue to advocate, continue to get involved, um, and just continue to be present. And also, we need to do a better job at listening. I think sometimes we feel attacked by the schools as a parent, and I, I am a parent myself, and I get that. Like, I don't know, my daughter's teacher made a comment once, and I was like, whoa, whoa. Like, she was like, oh, she knows, like, eight out of her whatever letters. And I'm like, yeah, but in Spanish, she knows them. You know, and I immediately, and I was like, okay, I had to take a step back. Why is this triggering me? <laughs> you know? Um, and so it's just kind of like, yeah, and like what she was just saying was just the basic fact, like these are the letters she knows, and I was adding all this emotion to it, um, and so I think sometimes maybe we feel attacked by the school, maybe because we aren't familiar with the system, we don't really trust that teacher, we haven't really connected with that school in particular, maybe we're new to the school, so I think we just really need to kind of listen to what the teachers are saying, because they're gut feelings are also valid. Mm -hmm. um, so some of my best evaluation result meetings are like when I'm able to describe a student's learning and the teacher's like, oh my gosh, yes. And the parent's like, oh my gosh, yes. Um, because I'm able to kind of answer to both of their concerns. So maybe view the other side as a, as a partner rather than an, an opponent or an, an obstacle. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not them versus us. It's definitely the team. Um, and so the sooner that we can get involved in that like team mentality, I think the better because ultimately everyone's here to help the student. 
Is it within a parent's rights to request a bilingual school psychologist if they only their district or their school has a monolingual school psych on staff? Is it appropriate to make that suggestion or is that not a parent's decision? No, it's definitely appropriate, but I don't know that uh, it's reasonable. I think what's more reasonable is to ask for, have you considered cultural and linguistic factors okay. and how this impacts the evaluation results, right? I think that's because, I, like I said, like they're just, you know, if I get a student that comes from an African-speaking country um, they, and they speak their own dialect or their own language, I'm going to be monolingual. Like, I don't, I don't know their culture and I don't know their language. And if I did, I don't have tools. I don't have an IQ test that I can give them in that language. I don't have achievement measures to see how they read and write in their native language. And so, but, but I do have knowledge of cultural and linguistic factors that impact learning, right? I, I can ask about the family's language history, I can do a language history survey to see how fluent and how much communication this child has in their native language, right? I can look at their developmental profile and see what that trajectory was um, in, in their native, you know, country and see, was anyone else ever concerned? Like, did anyone else, you know, and I'll look at all of these pieces of the puzzle um, as a monolingual school psych in that particular case setting. So I think what's more appropriate to ask is, and another really good question is, are you comparing my child to a monolingual peer? Mm -hmm. Which is a big no-no. Like I can't compare bilingual learners to their monolingual peers. I mean, their trajectory of their learning is just totally different. Mm -hmm. That would be another more appropriate question. Or are you comparing my bilingual student to another bilingual student that is similar and what I mean about like the similarities are did they come and enroll at the same time at the school right do they also have maybe two languages at home or a similar um, family language plan do have they had similar educational experiences meaning they both enrolled in first grade second now they're both in third grade like those are the peers the peer group that I want you to compare my student to because that will give me a better gauge. And that's usually what I ask the teachers. A lot of times you could ask better question or demand <laughs> request is to have the EL teacher involved in the meeting because many times, nine times out of 10, they're not involved. So if a, a child is enrolled in the school and you're, someone starts the process of special education, for whatever reason, um, and they're getting EL services, for whatever reason, the ELL teachers don't come to meetings or their feedback. And this is a big complaint from multilingual teachers and EL teachers and, you know, uh, teachers that provide EL services. They don't, they don't get involved. They're not seen as like part of the team. Um, so I would bring that teacher in because that teacher has a wealth of knowledge as to how to better support a bilingual learner in the school setting and they're um they have a sample size an accurate sample size to compare your your student to versus the english teacher or the math teacher is really only looking you know your child is the anomaly because maybe that's the only bilingual learner in that class 
and they're just not doing as well as the rest. Well, yeah, they're not going to because they're different. They, their learning is different. Yeah. Juliana, you, you already talked about that instance in which the teacher just kind of stated that your daughter, I don't know, only knew eight letters out of, I don't know how many. So this is an example in which you are applying what you know to your own experience. So we wanted to ask you, how has your experience as a bilingual school psychologist informed your work and your parenting potentially as well, of course? Yeah. So um, if anything, it has made me a much more stronger defender of bilingualism. Um, we live in the Midwest. We're in Ohio. Um, we don't have we don't have the benefit of community here. Like I did growing up in South Florida, like my relatives do growing up in South Florida, right? Um, and so I am constantly seeking ways to input, increase the input of Spanish with my children. Um, and so I'm very selective of their peer groups. Um, I'm very selective of their screen time and making sure that it's in Spanish. Um, and it's a it's a big deal. It's a sacrifice. I'm constantly calculating English input versus Spanish input. And our family language plan 100% aligns with those goals. Um, and so I've been I consume um, a lot of information from uh, Kayla Diaz, who's a linguist, um, and she has her brand Bilinguitos, um, and she does a lot of like virtual um, classes and consultations and so we've developed um, based on her strategies a family family language plan that uh, will lead to hopefully my children maintaining their the minority language right our our native language which is Spanish so we do minority or target language at home 100% of the time both of uh, my husband and I both are from Colombia and we both speak Spanish um, and so we do all of our books in Spanish even if they're in English I translate them on the spot. Um, most of our, uh, almost 100% of our screen time is in Spanish. Um, and when it comes to schooling, I wasn't really worried. Um, I wasn't worried about, oh, my child's going to be stressed at school. I mean, I just, I prepped. And so when we started school, I started kind of shifting some of the school vocabulary to English and giving her the words. Um, she's still in preschool, and so last year was her first preschool experience, and so I said, if you want water, you know, I would tell her, tell her you know, mira tu water bottle, so she knew, like, oh, water bottle means water, you know, um, mira tu backpack, and I, so I started uh, kind of code switching a little bit more as we got ready to start school. Um, we did a lot of role playing in English, so she knew that vocabulary. Um, and so I also like understand um, that I like I'm not going to be alarmed if in the middle of the year she only knows eight letters in English because I know she she knows a whole alphabet. So when I look at her entire language repertoire, which is what linguists and SLPs and school psychs what we're you know looking at, I want to see their entire language repertoire then. I know that she knows all of her letter sounds, right, um, and letter names, um, both in English and in Spanish. And so I, some of those things aren't really concerning. That's awesome. Yeah. If a school, if a bilingual school psych isn't concerned, then we can all relax a little bit, hopefully. Um, okay. Another big question. <laughs> what do you think is the greatest misconception about bilingual children 
uh, first among parents and then also among teachers? Okay, so among parents, um, one of the biggest things is that if there is a delay in communication, um, that it's because they're bilingual. And no, like that's 100% a myth. And um, if there is a, if, if you speak Spanish to your child or you're concerned about communication, it, let me tell you, it's not because they're bilingual. Um, bilingualism does not cause language delays or communication delays, it, it just doesn't. So if you have a concern about communication, what your child is saying, how your child is saying it, saying it pronunciation, if other people start saying, ay, pero habla como diferente, todavía no habla, they're not speaking yet, uh, oh, they're, you know, and you start hearing that from other maybe moms or relatives, then you should be concerned about communication and you should probably get that checked out because there's nothing that beats early intervention. Early intervention is 100% the best way to go and you should see a specialist and you should rule it out and I guarantee it has nothing to do with bilingualism. So in terms of parents, that's one of the, the big misconceptions. Oh. And then in teaching, what I see as another big myth is the whole idea of the silent period Mm -hmm. And that kids enter, bilingual learners enter school and they go through the silent period. What happens is bilingual learners enter school and their, uh, obviously their English language skills are not going to be as developed as their, as their monolingual peers, right? Because remember, you can't really compare them to them. But they're still communicating. And that's the thing, like there's no such thing as non-communication. There's it's not like a silent, in a silent period shouldn't last years and years and years. What we see is a bilingual learner who has average communication and language skills in their native language enters an English dominant school setting and their English language skills are emerging, right? So they're down here. Um, and that happened with my daughter. She wasn't really speaking much in English, but she definitely understood, oh, it's circle time. I'm going to go sit in my circle, and this is my spot. Oh, I want a marker, you know, and she's able to express her needs and her wants and her emotions, and she, people aren't, her teacher's understanding her. She's being understood because she has average communication skills in all other settings um, and in her native language. And, they, and she is, what is she relying on? She's relying on that nonverbal communication. And so she's observing everything everyone else is doing, everything and and by honestly she started in september we had a parent teacher conference in like late october they were like yeah we're not concerned about her english language skills she was already speaking in english so we see a development of like basic interpersonal communication skills those like basic uh second language skills those pretty start emerging pretty quickly um you know if you go to a foreign country you're gonna pick up hello restroom <laughs> Thank you. You pick up like these basic, right, language oh, skills. Uh, yeah, it's the first thing you do. And that's, but you're not talking in another language, but you're still able to like, express your needs, wants and, and all that. And so what happens is, when you get a bilingual learner that does have a disability, that does have a language disorder or a language delay 
then we fail to act or intervene or accommodate because we blame it on the silent period. Mm. And that's, that's, that's just not, it just shouldn't be a thing. If you have a concern about a bilingual learner's learning, then as a teacher, you need to start taking intervention data, you need to start accommodating, you need to start modifying your instruction, the presentation of your materials. And as a parent, you need to start advocating. Request a RTI meeting. Request an extra conference with the teacher. Maybe provide additional support at home. Maybe look for tutoring. And you need to start advocating and also intervening because that shouldn't be the norm. Thank you for mentioning this today. Because for me, this is very like much hitting home. My daughter is in daycare today for the first time ever, and she doesn't speak any English. So here I am watching the camera thinking, will she be okay? But she's already playing around with other kids using her nonverbal communi communication skills and doing just fine. But as a parent, it's hard to be on the other side of things. Yeah. And I, you know, my husband isn't in this field at all. And so I definitely understand that concern. Um, because when my son, who's he is a three-year-old. He just turned three. He started preschool. He wasn't even three. He was like a couple months shy of turning three. And my husband was like, oh my God, what if he needs something? And I'm like, he will grab his teacher's hand and take her to what he needs. He's like, what if he's nervous? And I'm like, he, his body language will show it or, and the teachers will notice. He's like, what if, what if he needs help? And I'm like, he will scream. Like, <laughs> you know, he will make sure that be, and, and the thing is, is because most students are typically developing, right? Most kids, 90% um, of the population has average intelligence, has strengths that we are able to kind of reason when we have these problems. What becomes, you know, scary and nervous is with the students that do have a disability. And that's why we want to intervene early. We want to accommodate. We want to identify them so that we can support them um, through their learning process in starting in special needs preschool or students that maybe have like an unknown like language or communication issue. Well, then that becomes harder because then maybe some of these students don't know how to express themselves and maybe get their point across. And that's where it becomes like really murky. But I can guarantee that the majority of the students are fine in the and being fully immersed in that second language uh, or when you're introducing the English language they're totally fine and your daughter will come home today and say words in English that you're like oh my god it was one day and she's <laughs> like my son came home and he was like crisscross applesauce and I'm like he sings um twinkle twinkle abc and he goes to preschool two days a week for two and a half hours each day. So it's five hours a week of English immersion. Wow. That's it. That's all he gets every day. He Yesterday he was singing the ABCs, Twinkle Twinkle. Um, and it's just like mine, like explosion. Like I'm like, wow, the influence of the English language is so much. Um, yeah, find it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible. So she'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so to kind of conclude and wrap it up, if you had a magic wand and you can change one thing about our school system, um, what do you think would have the greatest impact on bilingual children? What one change? 
Oh man, I think on honestly on all children, increasing playtime and social emotional learning would probably have the biggest impact. Um, playtime, especially for bilingual learners, just more social um, social time, mm-hmm. uh, recess time, gym time, playtime, music time, some of these extracurricular like social activities because kids learn through play. And that's also when they can like use their peers to improve their uh, language, English language skills and just kind of gain more independence with and more confidence with their English. Um, assuming that's really the only issue is like that second language acquisition. I think it would happen a lot faster, but because playtime is constantly being reduced um, and extracurriculars um, and the arts are being taken out of the schools, I think that really has an has had an impact. Um, and social emotional learning, I think is fundamental to kids these age, uh, these days, because it's just like managing your emotions is really hard. And kids now are more anxious, more stressed out than any other generation. And so I really feel that giving them the tools and starting young, um to express their emotions to use uh words of affirmation which is something i do with my with my daughter um social stories are incredibly powerful and there's so much research behind that as well as affirmations and so really giving them tools to be like well-rounded social um and emotional like intelligent and increase that in um emotional iq i think would be uh, we would we would be so incredibly surprised at how that impacts their learning and then their just overall school functioning. Yeah, yeah, those those skills are tend to be devalued, I guess. You can't measure them as easily as you know how many numbers you can say or letter sounds. I guess one quick question that I wanted to ask and I kind of forgot when you were talking about it: Is possible to do any sort of assessment? only virtually these days? Yeah, I do most of my assessments virtually. Um, so I use a platform. Um, we call It's called Presence. It used to be called Presence Learning, so it's called Presence now. And all of my assessments are there. And then the student is at their school with, you know, with an on-site support person, which is typically the building school psychologist. Um, and they have like their computer and I have my computer. And then I do uh, I do general intelligence that way, and I do achievement that way. I just did one this morning, um, so I can do that. Uh, and then most of our rating scales, um, when I look at like social emotional or behavior, I email those out to teachers and parents. The only thing I can't do is observe in the classroom, which some people are still doing. Like they'll take the laptop and like observe that way, but um, that's essentially the only thing I don't do. Okay, good to know, especially for those families who might not be able to have access to a bilingual psychologist at all. Yeah, and school districts are contracting with schools, bilingual school psychs. And so that is like in, in Ohio, um, if there's a school district that needs bilingual school psych services and they contact me and those are done virtually. But before the pandemic, that would have been like frowned upon. Um, but now it's like, oh my gosh, well, at least we have someone, right? Like I can be at the meetings, I can help the parents, I can assess the student, 
and I don't have to leave my house and the school district can actually contract with me. So it's a big win. All right. So that's going to be it for today, but we'll be back soon. Thanks again, Juliana. This was super uh, interesting and um, we'll see you guys soon. Hasta luego. Bye. If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.